She sat in my office and said that she was not a kind of person that could suffer fools. She said that she was the kind of person that she wanted to be on the side of right, and if something was wrong, she had to set it straight. She was a beautiful lady. She expressed to me that nobody was ever going to take advantage of her again. Nobody was ever going to get over on her again. She believed in having strong boundaries and telling everybody the truth. When they were wrong, they needed to know. Over the next 30 minutes, we talked in great detail about her ex-husband, her ungrateful children, her former spouses, her former bosses, her former co-workers, and she did it with a lot of confidence and a lot of candor. And then about 30 minutes into it, she just broke down and began to cry, and it was a kind of sobbing, kind of overwhelming, loud crying. It's a kind of crying, guys, you know what I'm talking about, that when a woman begins to cry in this way, you begin to think, what, what did I do? What, what did I say? How, how, really, how can I stop it? it? Why am I even here? Finally, she was able to get herself together, and through her tears, she, I said to her, uh, what's really going on here? What are we really talking about? And through her tears, she said, why won't God let me have any friends? Why, why can't I keep a job? Why do the people I love hate me? Now, in that moment, I, I, was in an awkward, I was in an awkward situation because I knew the exact answer to her question. But because that conversation happened in my 50s and not my 30s, I knew that now was not the time to give her the answer. But if I'd done the pastor thing, if I'd chosen to do the pastor thing that day, I think I could have given her this passage of scripture that we're going to look at today in the book of James. As you just saw, we're in this series called Gym Class, where we're learning from the brother Jesus really practical ways of how to do our life. In fact, one of the ways to think about the book of James is James is just these practical solutions of how you do everything in your life, from how do you handle hard times to how do you, how do you deal with conflict to how do you get along with your faith, how, how do you deal with all those things in a practical way. You know, I came to a uh, moment of enlightenment a, a few years ago when, about my own life. I began to think about my, my bad decisions, about the situations I was in, of things that had gone wrong in my life, about relationships that had gone bad, about circumstances that I didn't like, about things that had happened that when I look back at the consequences, I was not happy about them, about the things that had caused uh, pain in my life about decisions that had were bad uh, and what I realized is there was a common denominator in all of those things I was the common denominator in all of those situations oh, I mean I could have told you about other people and the things that they had done I could have told you about things that hadn't gone the way I'd hoped they had gone I could have talked about decisions that other people made that were off of those but when I look back at all the things over the last 60 years of my life that caused me a lot of pain I was at all of them. I was the common denominator for every one of these problems. I looked back and I began to realize that I haven't lived the life that I wanted and a part of the reason was is because of me. Now James is really clear in, in writing this. In chapter 1 he says to us, your anger will never produce the righteousness of God. He says when you go into a place and you begin to show you know, difference between people and you choose between people and you show favoritism between people, that's never going to lead to the kind of life that your faith has to have an impact on that kind of thing. 
And then last week he talked to us about the power of our words and how we can burn down a whole country with just the power of words. That's things that we choose to do that don't get us where we want. So this week, James is going to take us on a little bit of a trip. That he's going to take us to a place where we begin to see not just that we have a problem, but where there's a solution to our problem. He wants to talk to us about how conflict comes about and how to handle it. In fact, this week and next week are really about this center thing of conflict in our life. So what I want to do today is I want to, I want to read to you what James has to say, and then I want to bring out kind of a big idea that's really important for us to get before anything else really foundational can take place in our life. So I'm going to read what James says, try to make it as clear as I can, and then we'll get to that big idea. Here's what he says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. So what I think James is getting at is sort of what he's been getting at in this whole thing. How do you really know if a person's faith is genuine? And more importantly, how do you know if, if your faith is genuine? How do you know if you really have a faith that makes any difference? I mean, you look at people like I look at people who, in fact, some of you are here and, you know, some of you aren't followers of Christ and you're trying to figure out the whole thing. And one of the things that's been a problem for you is you look at people who say they're followers of Christ and they're no better than anybody else. They, they're just as high, they're just as drunk, they're just as low, they're just as depressed, they're just as racist, they're just as, they're just as divisive as other people. And you, go, you look at them and go, dude, your faith is worthless. Your faith does nothing for you to which you and James would agree. James says, none of what a person says is their faith. If their faith doesn't have an impact on their life, it's, it's of no value. So James says, there's a way you can know. There's a way you can know if your faith is genuine or not. He, he gives us a couple of things in this passage to look at that I want to point out to you. He says, a wise person understands these two things. Do you have a life that's honoring to God? Does your life honor Jesus? The way I say it is, are your feet pointed in the direction of Jesus and are you moving in obedience? If your faith is not causing you to move more in obedience toward Jesus, if your feet are pointed in an opposite direction the way he would go, then your, your faith isn't much value. James says it, it ought to be an honorable kind of life. And then second, are there good works that are coming from you humbly? So are there good things that I do even when nobody sees me or do all the good things I have to do, do they also have to involve a selfie that I post somewhere? Does, do I have to say, hey, let's take a picture of this kind of thing? Or, hey, I, I want to do this kind of thing with you, but it really needs to be done in the way I think it ought to be done. Or, you know, that's not the kind of thing leaders do, and I'm a leader, so I can't really do that. Those kind of works where nobody really sees, if there's not good coming for your life that's just good flowing out of your life, if they don't exist, then, then James would say your faith it doesn't matter very much. He goes on down this track in the very next verse. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now, for just a second, I want to say something about a couple of these words because uh, we typically use them differently than uh, I think the way he's using them. When we hear envy, we think, I want, I want, and it's mainly about something somebody else has, and I guess bitter in that would be, I not only want what they have, but I'm mad that they have it. So 
That's not exactly what James is talking about other than the I want, I want part. So hold on to that. And then combine that, combine that idea of I want, I want with this whole idea of arguments and conflicts and debates of what he's been talking about because remember, this comes right after this section on words and how we use words. He's talking about the kind of discussion where I want versus you want. It's in a discussion where the heat goes up and people get louder and louder and louder. Now combine that with ambition. That sounds like climbing the ladder. He says bitter envy and ambition. But it's really about selfishness. It's about what's best for me. It's about my ambition above everything else. So he's talking to us about the kind of arguments who wind up happening at home or at work or in the HOA or at school or online where it's, I want this and you want this or this is the right way to do it because I'm on the side of right or you're on the side of right. He says, those are not the kind of things that followers of Christ would believe that the belief that matters ought to be involved in. Those aren't the kind of honorable things that we're talking about. You're wrong, I'm right, and I'm not going to stand for it. And then he goes on to get at the root cause of this. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and de demonic. We often think that I need to say something because I'm standing up for what's right. I'm, I'm standing up for the truth. And he says, listen, selfish ambition and conflict is, is not going to lead to the kind of wisdom that God wants you to have. That kind of wisdom that flows out of I want and I'm right and I got to have my way, that's not a God kind of thing. He's, he says that kind of thing is just normal. It's earthly. It's unspiritual. And then he throws down a word. He says it's demonic. Now, that gets us into some weeds, particularly for some of you, because some of us here... You love the idea of God and you believe there is a God and you're even okay with the Jesus idea and you, and you even like the idea of angels. But the idea of, of a Satan, of, of demons, you, you, you just think that's outdated. But Jesus was really clear and James, his brother, is pretty clear too. There, there is an enemy. He has, a, he has an army. There is a war going on on the battlefield. And his desire is to win the war against, against God, against his forces. He's fighting against what God wants and what is good. Now, one of the names for our enemy, uh, for Satan, is the accuser. He loves to accuse. And by accusing, he loves to separate. He loves to divide. He loves to keep people apart. Particularly, he loves to keep people apart who are trying to do what God wants them to do, who are trying to follow God. So I just want you to think about this for a second. Now, I know none of us judge. We say we don't judge. In our world, you know, judging is like the worst sin of all. So have you ever noticed when you judge, because, I mean, let's be honest, even though it's the worst, all of us do it. You're sitting in a room, and you're sitting in a room like this, and something happens, and immediately you go, oh, that's not right. Or here's an even easier one. Have you ever noticed when you're in a room with some people, and somebody walks in, and and they have something on, they're wearing something, and immediately you have an opinion about it. Or you see somebody and they got a hat on, and you don't like the hat. Or you don't like the way they're, what they're wearing, or you don't like the way they sound, or you don't like the way they laugh, or you like, don't like the way they don't laugh, or you don't like the way they talk, or you don't like the way they don't talk. You don't like the way they stand in the corner. You don't like the way you have to be in the center of the room. In the moment, you don't know anything about them, but you take one characteristic that you notice, and you sum them up. 
Now here's my question for you. Have you noticed that in those snap judgments that you make, that they're mostly positive, that you look and you look at what they were and you go, hmm, I like that. Or are most of your judgments, overwhelmingly, are most of your judgments about something negative? Do you find something about somebody you don't know that you sum up in a general way and you don't like what they wear or the tattoos they have or the way they look and you, you have something that inside of you, the inner critic begins to say, they're not your kind of person. They're not the kind of person you could move toward. Look at the way they laugh. Look at the way they move. Look at the way they look. Look at who they are. Look at their background. And it, the inner critic it makes you want to stay apart. Where does that come from? Where does that kind of idea come from? I bet for most of us, almost all of our thoughts are way more negative than they are positive. You know why? Why all of us experience that? Because it's coming from a common source. It's coming from our enemy who loves to accuse and, and loves to keep us apart and loves to separate human beings whom God loves. James wants us to know that even though that's earthly and unspiritual, it also is demonic. It doesn't come from a good place. It actually comes from an enemy that's trying to keep us separate. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. And then he contrasts it with what wisdom is like. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. It also is peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemaker will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Now I want you to notice two things that this wisdom says, and it will be shown by these two things. Wisdom is not shown by how smart I am. Wisdom is not shown by how lined I up by what's right on a particular topic. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is shown by my behavior again. Do I live a moral, a good kind of life? Are my feet pointed toward good, toward Jesus? And am I moving? And am I humble? And that doesn't necessarily mean I think lowly of myself. Humble people just don't think of themselves that much. They see themselves as just a normal, everyday person. So therefore, they can serve other people. They can love other people. They can look to the interest of other people and not their own. People that are like that, that live good lives and who are humble, able to serve other people, those people are wise people. And then he says that foolishness, the mark of foolishness is easy to see as well. It's conflict and constant drama. You want to know if a person's foolish or not? Look around them, is there conflict and constant drama? I'm not saying they can't explain the conflict, that they don't have an ability to point to somebody else that caused the constant drama. But is there conflict and there constant drama? James would say to you, that, that's not a very wise person. Now, that's all pretty clear. And you might not have said it that way exactly, but if you've lived very long, uh, you've noticed wise people are people who they do right by themselves. They're, they're, they're good in themselves. They're, they're in love with God. They move toward God. And they're loving toward other people. And they don't walk around in constant conflict and drama surrounding them all the time. But here's the truth. Everybody joining in here, you've been, you've been both of those people. At some point in your life, you've been both. Even though you wanted to stay on the side of right, You've been 
on the other side, no matter how hard you tried, you've been on the foolish side. Now last week, Nathan, he taught us this passage right before here about our words and the power of words, about our mouth and the damage that we do with the words that we say. And again, this is not earth-shattering stuff to anybody, but if you're 12 or 82, you, you have some words that you've got stored inside of you that somebody said to you, and they still hurt you. They still wound you. They still shape you in a bad way. And if you're honest, you admit, there are words that I've said. There are words that I've said that hurt other people. They probably carry around them in the same way. And it often feels like that the, that the only way I can keep from doing damage with my mouth is just to keep my mouth shut. But then I ignore all the good that can be done, the, the wise things that can be said, the, the loving things that can be said, the bringing the people together the, with the things that can be done, love that can happen if I would just speak words that should be said in the right time, in the right place. Now, what I just described to you, it has been the, the big battle of my life. One of the big battles of my life has been over this because here's what's true about me. I have the ability to stand in front of people and, and stand up and talk, and at the end of it, people will say, hey, what you said, it was, it, it was a blessing to me, and I don't even understand all of how that is, but that's an ability I have with the words of being able to talk in a way that blesses people. But I also know those aren't the only words that I have. Many of my words have often been angry and they've been hurtful to the people I love the most. That's why a, a few years ago in a passage of scripture I was reading, I came across these principles and I wrote them down and I had them in my journal and then I wrote them on a piece of paper that now hangs on my wall next to my computer and it says that my words should be few and true and gentle and life-giving. That's what I want my words to be. I want them to be only the, the amount of words that God wants me to say. And they all need to be true and they, they need to be gentle because I know how rough I can be on people. And I want them to breathe life into people. But no matter how much I want that, there are times in my life that I can't seem to get that done. That's why James writes, the passage we looked at last week, he says, people can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And most of us don't need an illustration of that. We are our own illustration of the inability to control the words out of our mouth. But that is so bleak and it's so hopeless. It, there must be something that we can do. Well, there is. And in the midst of this passage that I just walked you through, James points it out, but we miss it. We miss it because there's a fundamental principle that most of us, almost everybody I know, holds on to. And this fundamental principle, it makes us miss the solution to this problem. Uh, I'll get at pointing out the, the fundamental problem so that you can hear the solution this way. You know, it's only the most arrogant, the most prideful person that in a place where at least it's safe, that they wouldn't admit that they've made a mistake. Like, it wouldn't be hard for all of you to say that you made a bad decision in your life, right? I mean, everybody could raise their hand and say, yeah, I've made a bad decision. There, there have been decisions that you made that you now know you shouldn't have made. There are things that 
you did that you know you shouldn't did. There are deals that you did that you shouldn't do. There's money you spent. There's, there's things, there's places you went. There are things that you did. There are dates you wish you'd never taken. There are marriages you wish you'd never been on. And, on. and it goes on and on and on. But here's what I know. In the moment, in the moment when we made those decisions, all of us made them and we thought, this is going to make me happy. I'm making this decision and I think it's going to make me happy. I'm doing this decision because I think it's the right thing for me to do. But then you find out you're wrong. We all know we were wrong. And there are things that when they happened to you, there were things that happened to you and they were bad. And when they happened to you, you were convinced that they were the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You, you could not imagine how you could continue. You, you knew your life would be ruined. You knew that there was no hope for joy again. You knew that it was all wrong. But you were wrong. Because now you look back and you think, wow, am I glad I didn't marry her. Wow, am I glad I didn't do that deal. Wow, am I glad I didn't spend that money. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. But in the moment, you were convinced it was absolutely wrong. You knew it would be terrible. Now, I could go on and on about that for a little while, but I think all of you get the sort of idea that in the moment we thought we were making a decision that we thought would make us happy, but it turned out we were wrong. And in a moment we thought we knew what was absolutely terrible, but it turned out we were wrong. What we just admitted is we don't always know what's best for us. We don't know what's best for us. That our heart, that our gut, that our intuition, that the best thoughts that we have, that we don't always know what's good and right and true, that we often miss out on what's the right decision for us to make in the moment. And yet, and yet, even though everybody here would admit, I made decisions that were wrong, I thought bad things that happened were bad for me, they turned out to be good, I was wrong on both of those. And even though we admit, I don't know what's best for me, there's this deeply held belief among almost everybody of, hey, in a moment, when you got to make a decision and you don't know what to do, you should go with your gut. You should go with your heart. Hey, do you be you. Do what's best for you. There's this deeply held, almost American belief that we have to do what feels right to us because you got to follow your heart. you got to do what's right for you. But all of us just admitted that that's not true for us. We've all messed up. And here's the other thing I know. You've watched other people you love do the same thing. You've watched people you love make decisions, and in the moment you knew what they were doing was wrong. And you even tried to tell them that was wrong. But they told you it was the right thing for them and that they were different. And you stood back and you watched as they screwed up your life, their life. But you knew it was wrong, even at the time, even though they were doing what they thought would make them happy. James just told us the reason that all of us feel that and all of us have seen it in ourselves and others, you know why? It's because it's earthly. It's common. And that idea that we can follow our heart, it just comes from our enemy. But he says, there is another kind of wisdom. There's a wisdom from above. And that wisdom, it leads to all the things that you and I want out of life. But we first have to start with getting rid of the idea of, I know what's best for me. And we have to replace that with the idea of, God knows what's best for me. God knows what's best for me to say. In those moments where I screw up, 
God knows the few words I should say, the true words I should say, the way to say them gentle. God knows to say them, how to say them in a way that would breathe life. God knows how to lead me in the decisions I need to make. God knows how to lead me out of conflict into resolution. God knows how to put my marriage back together. God knows how to do what I don't know how to do. I don't always know what's best for me. But God always knows what's best for me. But see, we'll never get to that place as long as we hold on to this other idea of I just need to follow my heart. I just need to go with my gut. I just need to do what feels right for me. I'm different than other people. I don't know what's right for me. But God always does. This is simple, but it's huge. Here's what I'll ask you. If you really believed that God always knew what was right for you, who would you turn, tune into to get your answer? You'd, you'd listen to God. And in those moments where you, you couldn't find it directly, who would you listen to instead of listening to you? Well, you'd listen to people of God around you. People have shown wisdom who, who they have their feet pointed toward Jesus and they're moving. You'd listen to them and you'd, you'd get a consensus from them because you don't know what's best for you, but God always knows what's best for you. It changed how you do everything. It changed the way you talk. It changed the way you interact. It changed the way you deal with other people. The thoughts you have on a, da a daily basis. If you and I could get deep in our mind, I don't know what's best for me, but God always knows what's best for me. In fact, that's so important. I want us to say it out loud together, but I want us to do it in a way that emphasizes both parts because both are really important. So I want you to say, I don't know what's best for me, but God always knows what's best for me. Okay, can we say that together? I don't know what's best for me, but God always knows what's best for me. I started this message by telling you the story about the woman in my office who was blaming God for her lack of relationships and her lack of ability to hold on to a marriage or to have a relationship with her kids or to hold on to a job. What I wanted to tell her that day that it took me a long time to help her understand was you've been living your life, your whole life, according to what felt right to you. You've been saying what you wanted to say. You've been doing what you wanted to do. You've been interacting with people in the way that you thought was right, that would felt right to you. If they made a mistake, you pointed it out. If you, they did wrong, you blamed them for it. If they, if they did anything, you made sure they knew. And now you wound up in pain in a pastor's office complaining and blaming God because you had done everything you wanted to do. It led you to that place, you doing what you wanted to do. I could also point to a similar situation of a guy who never said what he should have said, who never pointed out to people what he needed to know. He thought that what he needed to do was to swallow all of his truth in the name of keeping peace. And in the name of keeping peace, he never gave people the wisdom that would come from his life. He just pushed it all down. He never told the truth. And all of his relationships were crumbling around them, all because he thought he was following what was right for him. They both needed to hear what I need to hear, what you need to hear. I don't know what's best for me, but God always knows what's best for me. So here's my question. Have you resolved that in your mind? Have you come to a place of, I mean, it, I'm not asking if you decided you wanted Jesus to take you to heaven when you die. Have you come to a place where you've decided God always knows what's best in every situation? 
if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ yet, this is a step in that direction of realizing that Jesus is a really smart guy. Have you come to the place of realizing, I don't know what's best. I don't always know what's right for me. But if there is a God, he, he would know what's right for me. And then if you're a Christian and you're like me, and you believe that God has not only spoken to us, but God sent his son to be with us and to live among us and to give his life for us and to put his Holy Spirit in us. Have you come to the place that you get to the place whether you agree with what God says or not, that you at least say, I don't know what's best for me, but whether I agree with it or not, God always knows what's best for me. So when I'm reasoning, when in my heart I begin to say, but I'm different than everybody else and I can handle this and I should do this. Instead of going all those kind of ways and I'm going to go with my gut and people say, you got to go with your heart, I'm going to go, no, I'm going to go with God. Because I don't know what's best for me. But God always knows what's best for me. Have you gotten there yet? It starts with that statement of letting the both of them get deep into me. I don't know what's best. I can't follow my heart. I can't go with my gut. I can't go with my intuition. I can't go with my thoughts because I don't know what's best for me. But God always knows what's best for me. Are you there? Well, what I want to do is I want us to end today by giving you some time to think about that and to reflect. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and I want, I want to direct you to consider just those two statements. And then because it's important, I want to give you a chance to respond because it's important not only we think about it, but that we respond to it. So would you right now, would you go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes, and let me lead you in just a moment of reflection. Right now, maybe you're in a place where you've messed up and you know you've messed up and you've hurt somebody or you've hurt yourself or your place where you made a decision and you thought you had it all worked out and now it's pretty clear to you that you messed up. And even though in the moment there were people around you saying, don't do this, you went ahead and did it. Would you go ahead right now, would you say to God, God, will you forgive me? God, will you help me? Or maybe you're in a place right now where you're on the front side of that. There's something that you know you want to do. And other people have told you it's not the right thing. There's this nagging sense inside of you that it's not the right thing. Would you right now? Would you be willing to just sit and turn your hands over on your lap, facing up, palms facing up, and just say, God, I don't know what's best for me. But I believe you know what's best for me. If you believe that's true right now, would you just say those words out loud? I don't know what's best for me. But God always knows what's best for me. Right now with our, with our eyes closed, just before I pray, if, if you're in a place where you you want to express your surrender to God in this matter, would you, would you just raise your hands up and surrender? Is this a symbol of response to God that you turn it over to Him? Now let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I pray for everybody that's joining in that's at a point in their life where they've either come to a place that they know they've messed up and they need you to forgive them because 
they went with their gut, they went with their heart, they wound up doing what they thought was right, and now it's painfully clear to them they don't, they don't know what's best. They're trusting in this moment that you know what's best. Would you give them a sense that you're with them, that your wisdom will guide them? For the rest of us, Father, that have our hands up, that we're at a place where we're pre-making bad decisions, would you just help solidify in us again? I don't know what's best, but God knows what's best. We turn our life and our will and control over to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now as a final way of responding to this, I've asked our band to lead us in singing. And I know some of you aren't big into singing, but there's something about saying these words or just at least reading these words. There's a part of this song that we're going to sing that says exactly what we need to say. God, I give you my heart. I, I surrender it to you. So I'm going to ask right now that you go ahead and you stand up and let's let our bands lead us in singing. And if you can sing it with a full heart, express this to God as we sing it together.